a shorter sermon today as I was preparing for Genesis chapter 3. I realized uh, that it was not going to take as long to preach through, or I should say not going to take me as long to preach through as it usually takes me to preach through uh, passages. So that proved true first service. I think the sermon was like 45 or, or 50 minutes. We actually had people showing up for second service that were alarmed that something was wrong because cars were already gone and they're used to coming in and like the sermon is just wrapping up. They thought there was a bomb threat or something. So everything's fine. Everything's okay. We just didn't preach as long. But I wanted to give you a warning in case you're visiting so you don't think this is normal. <laughs> uh, so a few of the points today, I don't normally do this, but let me give you a few of the points. There's some, there's some very basic points in this passage, but we'll, we'll elaborate a bit. Um, one of them is that it is sad when people die. Okay, we'll talk about that, but it is sad when people die, and we'll talk about why it's sad when people die. Uh, we'll, we'll see here how Abraham and Sarah are examples to us. They are um, examples in the way they live and the way they die. Okay, they are always great examples for us. Um, we'll talk about the last day of your marriage being the most important day. Not the first day of your marriage, but the last day actually being the most important day of your marriage. Uh, one of the encouragements that I will make that may seem random now, hopefully will be clear as we get in, is an encouragement for husbands to uh, spend money on their wives. We'll get there. <laughs> When I got to that point in the first service, it was very interesting to see the polar opposite reactions. Almost universally, every man instantly had a scowl on his face and all the women were looked elated with joy. There were some gals visiting and I think they were like, we've found our church, honey. The Lord has brought us here. So anyway, well, okay, so good. You're, some of you, are, half of you are excited about that. And then finally, um, we'll look at really What's going on here with this, uh, with this purchasing of this property that, that Abraham's going to do and how he's, he's loving Sarah when he's doing this, but he's also loving the Lord and, um, and holding on to his promise. And hopefully we'll see how that all, uh, that all works out. At the end of chapter 22, let's look at that before I pray. At the end of chapter 22, I just wanted to briefly read through and, and explain this transition that's between chapter 22 and chapter 23. It's a short genealogy, really is what it is. It's going to talk about Abraham's uh, brother and the children and the descendants that he has. And when a genealogy shows up in your Bible, uh, especially when it shows up in Genesis, it's usually uh, serving, among other reasons, a transition between two pieces in the, in the literature. So like what's happening here is we're going from chapter 12 through chapter 22, which has been this chronological look at Abraham's life. I mean, for months, we've just been looking at Abraham and Moses has been taking us chronologically through his life. And in starting in chapter 23, you almost have an appendix to that. And there's going to be three stories that are told as, 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 as it wraps up Abraham. So chapter 23 is the death of Abraham. Chapter 24 is the finding of a wife for their son Isaac. I'm sorry, chapter 23 is the death of Sarah. Then the finding of Rebekah, a wife for their son Isaac. And then chapter 25 will be the death of Abraham. 
And then Genesis will be, will be done with the account of Abraham. And then we move into the account of his son Isaac and, and Jacob and, and Joseph and so on. As we're following this family uh, that God has his hand on in a very special way. Uh, but in between that transition from this chronological account of Abraham's life and then this appendix of his life, we've got these verses. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, after what? After Abraham nearly sacrificed his son, Isaac. Okay, we looked at that last week if you were here. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz is firstborn and, and Booz his brother. Uz and Booz. Just because names are in the Bible does not necessarily mean they're good names for your children. So we would not encourage you to name your, your boys Uz and Booz, especially the latter. Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And we'll come back to this parenthesis. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. That's really important. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Agam, Tehash, and Mecca. So Abraham's going to end up having 12 kids because he's going to remarry. His brother has, has 12 kids. And then one of these children, we find out, is Rebekah. So we're going to read about Rebekah next week in chapter 24. And Rebecca is just going to be this lovely woman that God brings for um, Abraham and, and Sarah's son Isaac to to marry, and so this gives a little background. Hey, who's Rebecca? Where does she come from? Well, the author is getting us ready for that here at the end of chapter twenty-two, and we get to chapter twenty-three now, and uh, we, we we're going to see that um, Abraham he holds things in this world in a loose hand, which is good, and and Christians should do that. Uh, and Hebrews chapter eleven tells us that that he had a the the focus of his life he was able to not um you know uh, attain a lot of possessions and, and not become super uh, materialistic and, and he never builds a big house though though he's one of if not the wealthiest man around at the time and yet he's uh, he's doing that because he's holding everything in this life with a loose hand so he's got gifts that God has given him and he has treasures that God has given him but they're not ultimate gifts and they're not ultimate treasures God is the ultimate gift God is the ultimate treasure I mean, here you are, Abraham, you're, you're, you're wealthy, you're powerful, you've got people who follow you, you've got an army. Why not build your own kingdom? Why not build your own city? And remember what Hebrews 11 tells us? It says that he's focused on the city of God, okay, whose builder is God. So he's looking heavenward and he's looking forward. And so he calls himself for his whole life uh, a stranger and an exile in, in this land of Canaan. And you see that his kids and his grandkids are going to pick that up, including the church today. Because we still say, don't we? Uh, some of you own homes, but you, but you still, if you've got a good perspective, uh, your allegiance is not to the kingdom of America. Your allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And so we still call ourselves aliens. We still call ourselves strangers in this land, which means we're not there yet. We're not home yet. We may have possessions, but we hold those things in a, in a loose hand because our, our vision, what we're looking for, is the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth. So Abraham, while he holds things in this life loosely, he holds Sarah tight. He holds Sarah tight. And when her life ends, this is a very big deal. A very big deal for Abraham. He's crushed. And we're going to see that. So let's pray. And we're going to look at this uh, this beautiful relationship as it wraps up between Abraham and Sarah. And look at how he how he honors her, honors her in her in her death. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have blessed us beyond measure. 
And Lord, I suppose we could divide this room up and there'd be people here who know that you've blessed them and people who don't know you've blessed them. Um, God, I'm sure there's people here who think that they've blessed themselves or they've been, uh, they've been lucky or they've just been fortunate. And they don't realize that it has been um, none other than the hand of God who has blessed them and has provided for them. And I pray that, uh, that, that an object of praise would be rooted in their hearts now that people would see you as the giver of life, uh, see you as the sustainer of life, uh, that they would praise you for that. And I pray that that would be on the way to them praising you for salvation. And I'm sure you have people in this room who, who you have determined to save but are not saved yet. Lord, it would be wonderful if you'd save them today. We pray that you would open their eyes and awaken them to the glorious death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, that they would see it in a whole new way, that they would see it, uh, they would see it as what it is, uh, your death in their place uh, that brings reconciliation between them and a God that they've grievously offended. So help us all, God, to see the offense that, not the offenses we do, but the offense that we are. Help us to feel the weight of that, to be burdened by it so that uh, chips are off our shoulders, so that the arrogance is gone, so that the pride is gone, so that we humble ourselves before you and we would be embraced by you. Uh, we would no longer be proud. We would see our sin and see the offense that we are to you and then see how great your love is for us. And pray that we would see that through your love for Abraham and Abraham's love for his wife and all that faithful Abraham was able to do, not because Abraham was great, but because his God was great. And we love you and give you praise and ask for your help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now please open your Bible. Uh, done with Genesis chapter 22. Let's looking now to Genesis chapter 23. And first to say this point again that I said in the beginning. Remember, as we read through this, that uh, Abraham and Sarah, okay, they are in our Bible. Um, one reason they are in our Bible is they are great examples of faith. They're great examples of faith. So not only does God give faith, not only does God enable faith, not only does God call us to have faith, but God also gives us examples of faith. Um, some of you have examples that you can think of right now. Um, people who have been faithful. Um, people who have loved God and trusted God and you want to pattern your life after them. Hebrews 13 tells you to do as much, that you need to consider your leaders. You need to watch the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Well, Abraham and Sarah are, are lifted up. Abraham is the, the father of our faith. Sarah is the mother of our faith. Um, and specifically, specifically, men can be called to model their life after Abraham in many ways. And women, ladies, you can be called to model your life in many ways after Sarah. I mean, after we're done with these descriptive accounts of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham's going to get mentioned some 300 times in your Bible. That's a lot. Some 300 times. And he's being held up as the father of our faith. What that means is that if you're a Christian, Abraham's your he's your dad in a sense. Not physically, but spiritually. Uh, you say, well, I'm not a physical, biological descendant of Abraham. Maybe not, of course not. We understand that. But he's our spiritual father if you are a Christian. What that means is, if you love and trust God, you love and trust God the way Abraham loved and trusted God. Okay, so we are his spiritual offspring. We are his spiritual seed. And so if we want to grow in faith, okay, we look to him. The Bible calls us to look at him and say, hey, look to Abraham. 
See how he responded to life. See how he faced the decisions that God brought him. See how he uh, held things loosely on his days on this earth. And see how he trusted the Lord in all things and was faithful. And there's much that we can learn about him. And ladies, Sarah is mentioned in your Bible specifically. And not a lot of gals are mentioned in the Bible uh, calling women to model their life after him. In fact, not even Mother Mary is is mentioned the way Sarah is mentioned. But Mary, Mary gets all the hype. No disrespect to the Mary, the mother of Jesus, but we need to pay attention to what God says about Sarah. He says some very special things about her. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, maybe a more obscure verse to you, but in those two verses, we're called to imitate Abraham and Sarah. We're called to look to them. And Sarah's named right there with Abraham. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Okay, so if that's you, listen. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to, okay, where do we look? Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. So it means you were carved out of something. You were brought out of something. What is that? Look to Abraham, your father. You're his kids. And look to Sarah who bore you. That's your mom and dad. So look at Abraham and look at Sarah and see how they lived their life. 1 Peter 3, 3 through 6. Um, Ladies, you're probably more familiar with this, where Sarah is named explicitly as one that you should model your life after. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And then who's the example that's raised up? Sarah. Sarah, this woman whose life is is coming to an end in our text today. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So we say that just to remember as we read this, um, we read this the end of their life together, Abraham and Sarah. Let's continue to see them as the examples that, that they are. The first two verses of Genesis chapter twenty-three. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, I'm going to say a lot of things about Abraham and Sarah and their relationship. And um, uh, a lot of things we can draw from this text and others that are going to be applicable, especially to uh, those of you who are husbands, those of you who are wives, uh, those of you who are mothers, those of you who are fathers. But I, I want to I want to say this, and I should have said it earlier in the first service, right? And that is that when we look at text that deals with a specific station of life, if we're not in that station of life, we can tune it out. So... Here we are, we're talking about, okay, husbands, this is what you're supposed to do. Wives, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what God says. Well, I'm not married. I'm not married, so this doesn't, uh, this doesn't apply to me. Or I know we've got many, and I'm never, never going to get married. Or I don't have children, I'm never going to have children. So, but remember, remember this does apply to you because, because who you are now is, is who you will be. Hopefully just a more sanctified version. 
right, when you get married and when God would bring you children. And so it's important to live now the way you want to live and it's important to behave now the way you want to behave and not to think that, as many of us have learned, that there's just a switch you're going to flip when you get married and everything's going to change and you're going to be holy. That's not the case. It's actually going to, when you get married, it amplifies your sin. It amplifies your sin and it amplifies your sinfulness. It just puts it on display for someone sleeping next to you. That's what marriage does. And so we need to begin to behave now before we're married. And for those of you who feel um, hopeless, because I've had conversations with some and know, you know, I wanted to be married at 18 and, and I'm not, or 19 or 20. Well, remember Isaac in our story today, he's 37 years old. Guess what? He's not married yet. He's not married yet. And statistically, over 90% of you will get married at some point. Those are Pretty good statistics. Isaac's 37 and single. Uh, Sarah wanted to have children her whole life. Didn't, didn't have children until she was 90 years old. So there's hope for you, okay? There's, there's, there's hope. Isaac's 37 and single. Uh, Sarah's 89, no child. Uh, he gets married. She has a child. There's a lot of hope when we read God's word. Um, so verses 1 and 2, we read here about the, the death of Sarah. Just two short verses. And then it's going to move on to, uh, you know, post-death, what Abraham's going to do. Uh, but there's a lot in these two verses. And there's a lot that we've already learned about Abraham and Sarah and their relationship. But there's some key things to draw out. Just in how Abraham responds when he, when he loses his wife. Um, some numbers here. One thing to, to take note of is that Sarah is the only woman in the entire Bible whose age at death is recorded. Because women keep that secret, right? <laughs> Their age. She's the only one in the entire Bible uh, whose age at death is recorded. She's significant, 127 years old. Uh, so she had Isaac when she was uh, about 90. So I said this before, so we know that Isaac is probably about 37 years old. Uh, Sarah, I think, that's, I think that's sweet because I think that Sarah probably when she had Isaac at 90 years old was wondering if she was really going to have much time with him. And, and God was gracious, wasn't he? God gave her 37 years. 37 years. Watch her boy grow up into a, uh, into a godly man. So Isaac's 37 years old. Abraham's a ripe age of 137 right now. And he's going to keep going. Abraham's 137 years old. Uh, Sarah and Abraham, as we've been reading this, way back in Genesis 12, they were called out of, of, of Ur, the land that they were from, where their families were, where their security was, and God sent them packing and wandering. And they've been wandering as foreigners and exiles for over 60 years. And at this point, they've probably been married for over 100 years. I, I wish I could be married to my wife for 100 years. I wish I could be married to my wife for 100 years. That is two, they ce- I was thinking about, they celebrated two golden anniversaries. I don't even know what 100 is. What medal is that? <laughs> two golden anniversaries. It is most likely that over 100 years, this couple has been married to each other. That is a long life together. That is a long life together. A long life to be faithful to each other and to love each other. I've been married, I've been married to Christian for 13 years. Just just 13 years. And uh, my whole motive for living a long life on this earth is more time to love her. I was thinking about it this week. That really, that really is my motive. Because I, I, it is, Paul says, right, he says it is better 
for me to depart and be with the Lord. He says these kinds of things all the time. Paul's like, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die. Uh, because this is really hard and Jesus is good and I want to be with him. But then he's got reasons why he also wants to live and he's preaching the gospel and people are getting saved and he sees the good in that. And I was thinking, yeah, there's a lot of reasons, you know, almost every reason why I really do want this uh, life to end because to go with, to be with the Lord is far better. But, but the sweetest thing that's in this life is, is being married to my wife. I love being married to my wife. I hope God would give me 75. I mean, this is my motive for eating healthy. This is why I don't eat MSG. I want to live and other things. I want to live as long as I can. The primary reason I want to live as long as I can is I, I just want to keep loving my wife. Um, I just I enjoy her. She is she is good for me. Um, I can do nothing with her, and it is a ton of fun. I can't. We have this. Thing, I cannot. I've realized I can't. I'm always. Um, I'm always. This may be too much information. I'm always. I always seeing her and touching her. I can't walk by her without looking at her. Or, I can't walk by her without putting a hand on her. So, my hand's going somewhere. I just. I have to, like, reach out. <laughs> And, and touch her when I walk by her because I just can't, I can't be apart from her. Those of you who know me, I'm not an affectionate person. I'm, some people are like, I'm a hugger. I'm not a hugger. I'm, let's do the fist bump. You know, you're not getting within the circle of trust, which is, you know, five inches. Uh, you, you don't get within that. But there's so, some of you I have great affection for. I love you. I hug you. And I'm not opposed to it. Don't worry about that. But, but with my wife, I'm a sponge. I'm just a, she calls me that. She's like, you're an affection sponge. I can't, I can't be close to her enough. I can't have her arms around me enough, my arms around her enough, next to her on the bed, on, on the, in the bed. I just, I, I get, I get upset and I lose confidence and all these things happen if she's more than like two feet away. It's bad. I just, I want to be, I could do, we have these things. We, at night we have this routine. I've told you about this before. We, um, we get the kids to bed. And, um, and by the time the kids are in bed, we're ex- exhausted, we're just totally exhausted at the end of the day. And um, but we'll typically talk for a little bit just about our day and, and what went on. And then um, and then we like to sit down and we like to watch a show together. We like to watch TV together. I, I, we love to watch TV together for about 15 minutes. Right. Because then we're you know, we're absolutely passed out. But we watch shows like like our show is Murder, She Wrote. Some of you don't even know what Murder, She Wrote is. It's a super corny Angela Lansbury show from the mid-80s. And we're totally hooked on Murder, She Wrote. It's a terrible show. I mean, it's just the acting is awful. The game we play while we watch it is Name the Worst Actor because it's so bad. They obviously gave, you know, J.B. Fletcher got all the cash and the rest of the actors were thrown in a pickup truck at Home Depot. No one, no one knows how to act in the show, but we love, we just love the show, but something lame, dumb, corny. Couldn't recommend the show. It's really pretty lame, but we just, we're, we just love it. But what we really love is just, just laughing and enjoying that show together. But what, I, why am I saying all that? I just, I love being married to my wife. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine what this would be like for Abraham. And he's gonna, you're going to see how he feels here for him to lose this woman after a hundred years. I mean, they have become one. Hey, their life is, is one. And there comes this sad day where it's separated. And Abraham is now left all alone. All alone. For a century, he doesn't know what that's like. He goes home, and who's there? Sarah's there. Okay, you can smell her cooking outside the house. See her lovely face when he walks inside. Can feel her uh, em- embrace. And, the, and now all of that is, is gone in a moment. In a moment, okay, according to God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, this is taken from her. The name Sarah means princess. 
no joke. The name Sarah means princess. And so his princesses died after a hundred years together. And scripture tells us he does two things. He weeps and he mourns. Now, I think weeping is a big deal here for Abraham because Abraham's like, he's one of those guys that just does not cry. He doesn't cry. It's the first time we read about Abraham shedding a tear. And, and I think Abraham's had many opportunities to shed tears. When God called him to leave his homeland and leave everything that had brought him safety and security, all the, the sources of, of love, uh, protection, everything he had, God called him to leave, didn't, didn't shed a tear. As he looks over the, uh, 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 from the hill, he looks down on the destroyed cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Doesn't shed a tear. Of course, he's a man of God. He loves the Lord. He loves people. He's proven that. So it doesn't mean that he's not feeling things, but it means that he is a, a man who physically uh, is able to hold things together. So he looks down at the destroyed cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. No, no, no tears are, are shed there. Uh, when sending his child and the mother of his child away into the wilderness, knowing that he probably will never see them again, Hagar and Ishmael doesn't shed a tear. When he is asked to sacrifice his only son and climbs up a mountain and straddles his son with a, with a dagger above his head, ready to pierce his son's heart, doesn't shed a tear. God brings a sacrificial ram in place of his son, doesn't shed a tear. But when does he shed a tear? When Sarah dies. It doesn't say he sheds a tear, it says that he, he weeps. It is sad when people we love die. It is sad when people we love die. I've heard people say that uh, as Christians, we should be careful not to mourn too much. Say that it's faithless when uh, people who, who love God and uh, are close to us, when, when they die, well, it's really pretty faithless to, to mourn over them for too long. I mean, don't you know they're with God? You should be happy for them. Okay? You should be filled with joy. And while that's true, while that's true, it's, maybe this will be helpful when some of you, either looking back when you have gone through this or, or when you will go through it, because people you love will die and people who are closest to you are going to die. Everyone is going to die. How are you going to handle that? And you'd know it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be sad. And it is not a faithless thing to be sad. It is, it is something that comes from a heart that is full of gratitude. A heart that is full of gratitude. Abraham had a heart that was full of gratitude. God, thank you. Thank you. You gave me a century with my princess. A hundred years. He's so thankful for the life that he's had with her. But he mourns and he weeps. Those are two separate things. Two separate things. To mourn and to weep. Uh, Mourning would be, uh, it was very... Uh, there were actually ways that you would be called uh, to mourn when someone would die. Uh, we have certain things as a country that we do when certain people die, right? We hold certain ceremonies or we have moments of silence or we, or we uh, raise the flag to only half mast. And these, these, are, these are physical things that we do and participate in, even if there's an emotional disconnection where we are mourning, right? And we're going through certain, the, the idea there is that we're going through certain motions to pay due honor and respect to the lives that have been lost. So Abraham does that. Okay, it tells us that he, he mourns and he goes through the proper emotions to express his gratitude and his honor and respect toward the wife that he's lost. But he doesn't just mourn. 
In other words, he doesn't just go through the motions because you'll read a lot about people who are mourning and not necessarily weeping. But it says that Abraham goes in and he mourns and he weeps. He, he goes in, he goes and he, he gets down on his knee, I presume, next to Sarah. And he thinks about their life together. And he starts recounting all that. Can you imagine how many memories they would have had? I think of the memories that I have with, with Kristen after 13 years. I can't imagine that exponentially. Times 10. He's got all of these memories with his life, Sarah. And so the loss for him is felt. It's felt deeply. And it brings the, the, the strong man in the Bible. It brings this strong man. It brings him to his knees. And it overwhelms him emotionally that he's going to have to go on the rest of his days without his sweet bride. And it causes him to weep. So one obvious reason we're making that clear is that he misses his wife. Some of you have people who have been close to you, how you've lost them. And you can still today, you can cry when you think about them because you miss them. Even if you know they're with the Lord. You're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You're rejoicing, you're glad they are where they are, but you're sorrowful. You're sad because you miss them. You wish you could see them and talk with them and hear their voice and, and play with them and share with them and laugh with them. You wish you could do those things again and you, you can't. That's sad. You, you miss them because they're not here. Another reason, though, that it's sad when we lose people we love is simply because it's death. And death is sad. When God created the world, when he created Adam and Eve, there was no death. They weren't given a clock that was ticking. Uh, decay was not introduced in the world. Death was not introduced into the world. Death, as we experience it, and decay, as we experience it in the world around us, in nature, in our bodies, is because of sin. Because of Adam's sin, and because of my sin, and because of your sin. And any time something decays, and any time something dies, we're reminded how serious sin is. We're reminded how sad sin is. We're reminded that this is not how things should be. That things are broken. And they're broken because we have an enemy. And they're broken because of sin. And it makes us long for the day when the last, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six, when the last enemy will be killed. And that's what? Death. Death. Last enemy taken out. No more dying. So Abraham misses his wife, of course, but he also is just reminded of how sorrowful and sad death and decay is. Matthew Henry said it this way. I thought this was, this is poetic and helpful and powerful. He said, tears are a tribute due to our deceased friends. When a body is sown, it must be watered. I love that. When a body is sown, it must be watered. But... We must not sorrow as those who have no hope, for we have a good hope through grace, both concerning them and concerning ourselves. And here's the next point I'd like to make before we move on to verse 3. Seeing how Abraham treats his wife, seeing how Abraham appreciates his wife, and looking closely here at the very last day of their marriage. I'd like to contrast that because in our culture, uh, the first day of marriage is the day that gets all the attention. Okay, the first day of marriage is the day that gets all the attention. But listen, the, 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 the first day of your marriage is an important day. 
But the first day of your marriage is not the most important day. The last day of your marriage is the most important day. How we begin is not the most important thing. How we end is the most important thing. And here we see faithfulness at the end. Their last day together is done well. Our culture doesn't focus on this as much, right? There's no magazines or, or books or, or reality television shows about, you know, winding life down with your partner. We don't have this. But, but that is what the focus is on our culture is the first day. Right? So we go through elaborate, and, and rightly so, we go through elaborate things to celebrate this first day. It's a very big deal. Everyone dresses up. Uh, everyone is invited. Right? She looks like a, a princess. He looks and smells like he will never look and smell again. All their friends are there. There's dancing. There's drinking. Sometimes it goes late into the night in biblical times, like a seven-day deal. I mean, this is an enormous, huge celebration. But that first day, we wouldn't want that celebration to make us think that the first day is the most important day. It's an important day. But the most important day is the last one. Not how you start. It's how you finish. The sad part is, I think, based on my just pastoral experiences, for most marriages, the first day, unfortunately, is the best day. And then after that, it's downhill. And after that, it's downhill. And that's the perspective of many. Many, not all, but many watch their wedding video because it's the good old days. Oh, look how happy we were. You hear things, people say things like, you're not the person I what? You're not the person I married. I'm pretty sure they are. <laughs> Actually, but, but what is this? Or, or thinking back to the, you know, our, our glory days when things were happy and things were sad. I mean, most marriages that don't even uh, end at death, most marriages end in divorce. And it'd be a stretch to assume that the 48% that don't end in divorce are happy marriages that see it as going uphill and not downhill. The reality, though it's sad, is that the first day really is the happiest day. And after that, it's downhill. A marriage is not supposed to be downhill from the wedding. It's supposed to be uphill. Uphill in, in, in more than one way. Uphill in the challenge and in the difficulty of it, but uphill in where you're headed to the to the mountaintop, where your vision is not obscured, where where you see things clearly, where the where the air is cleaner, where the sun is brighter, where where things are treasured the way they should be. This is what marriage is supposed to be. And so all of us should think of our marriage. All of us should think of our marriage, not as a looking back at where we were or what it was, but we should see the trajectory of our marriage. And the trajectory of our marriage, husbands and wives, is that one day your husband is going to die or your wife's going to die. And it might be helpful for us to ask ourselves, what will that last day be like? Amen. <laughs> what will I say? What will I think? What will I feel? Is it going to be full of regret? Is it going to be full of hope? Is it going to be a list of what I I wish I would have done and what I should have done? I don't believe Abraham's tears are tears of regret. He's a faithful man to his wife. Tears of hope and tears of joy, not remorse. 
And if we start thinking like that, it's also important to remember, isn't it, that we're, we are but dust. And we're not guaranteed another hour of life, let alone another hundred years. I find this very helpful. How, how do I know that I don't have one more week with Kristen? One more week with Peyton? One more week with Brady? One more week with Jackson? One more week with Blaze? One more week with Avery? One more week with my family? One more week with my church? How do I, how do I know? I don't. I don't know. So how will I spend those weeks? How will I spend those days? How will I spend those hours? Will I spend them in such a way that I can mourn and weep well when life comes to an end? Or will I mourn and weep bitterly? Bitterly, because I knew the good I ought to do and I did not do it. You see Abraham and Sarah's examples? They are examples for us to follow. And we see it in how Abraham faithfully responds to the death of his beloved wife. So verses 3 through 6, let's, let's move forward and see here what Abraham does uh, after his, his wife is, is gone. Verse 3 and 4, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham. So Abraham is, uh, we know that he's a sojourner in this land. He is a foreigner. Uh, he is just a, a mere resident. So that means he's not a native. He hasn't been born here. So he has no rights. And he's not a recognized citizen. Okay, so again, he has no rights. God told him to come here. Okay, and God told him that he was going to give this land to his descendants. But at this point, God has not given him this land. He doesn't own any property. You'll see that word come up over and over. He doesn't have any possessions here. He has no possession of land that he can claim is his. So if he wants to uh, bury his wife and family close, he's going to have to negotiate with the locals because he's got no land himself. He's going to have to initiate something with the locals and he's going to have to have a, a conversation with them and he wants to keep Sarah close. We'll see why, a couple reasons. But he wants to keep Sarah close. And so he's got to have a conversation with the locals. Verse 5. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So one of two things is, is represented in this verse. And will be carried on in the verses to come. Uh, as there's this dialogue between Abraham and the locals, one of two things is happening. One possibility is that these locals are very generous. That's a possibility. And some commentators say that's what's going on here. So they're, they're telling Abraham, listen, your money is no good here. Okay, we love you. You have our respect. And so we don't want to take your money. And so they're being very generous out of respect for Abraham. And so they're willing to, and they're going to push this, they're willing to give him, uh, pick any one of our, our top tombs here. Here's our catalog. You pick any, any one of them, the best one, and whoever it belongs to, we are willing to share with you. So that they may just be being generous and offering a free tomb. But I don't think that's what's happening. Or they are working against Abraham 
having a foothold in their country. Because a foothold is what he would have if he buys property. If he buys property, now he's a landowner and now he is privileged to certain rights as a landowner in this, and he's a foreigner right now. He's a sojourner right now. So they may love Abraham. They may respect Abraham. They may be genuine in their words, but there's certainly more going on than just mere generosity. If they're going, they'd rather him remain landless and thus rightless. And so if we give him something and he doesn't have to buy it, then he's still a slave, if you will. And he has no rights here in our, in our country. Let's read on and see how that works itself out. Verse 7. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So they're pushing the giveaway, and he's pushing the purchase. He doesn't want property just given to him. We're going to see he's got plans for himself to be buried there, for his family to be buried there. So he wants to have rights to this land. And he doesn't want it to belong to someone else who, after he's dead and gone, can do whatever they want with the property. So he pushes back. He pushes back and says, no, listen, I want to pay for this. But he takes it a step further. Rather than appealing to the Hittites corporately, this is wise and shrewd, he sees he's not getting anywhere with the popular vote, right? So rather than appealing to the Hittites corporately, he singles out one man and one particular piece of land with one particular cave, and he begins to deal directly with Ephron. Because Ephron has a, he has a nice field, and he's got a nice cave that will serve in Abraham's mind as the, the perfect place for him to lay down his princess. So he wants to deal directly with Ephron. And he wants to pay him for this so that it's in his possession. So that he knows that Sarah will be safe and sound forever. So that's what he's after. Verse 10. They're going to push back. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city. So this is in front of everybody. No, my Lord, verse 11, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. So what are they still pushing? Free. We don't want to sell this to you. Okay, under the guise of generosity. But just take this. Your money's no good here. Verse 12, Abraham's going to push it. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. So you see the Hittites' resistance to sell Abraham property. We do not want this man, this foreigner, the sojourner, to have any kind of a foothold in our country. So Abraham persists and persists, right? Okay, we're not, we're not going to get this guy to take it for free. So what we see here then is Ephron puts an exorbitant amount on the price tag. Okay, if I can't give it to you, then I'll just make the price tag so high 
that you say, never mind. Okay, I want to give you my I want to give you my old beat up car. I just want to give it to you. You don't need to pay me for it. I just want to give it to you. No, I can't take it. I got to give you something. I got to give you something. Okay, uh, one million dollars. That's my price tag. Give me one million dollars and the car is yours. Well, guess what Abraham does? Writes the check. This backfired. He writes the check. Four hundred shekels. Abraham, verse sixteen. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. Four hundred shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. The reason I think this is an exorbitant amount is that there's a couple other passages. One is in Chronicles, where David purchases some property, and the other is in Jeremiah chapter thirty-two, verse nine. In Jeremiah thirty-two nine, which is fifteen hundred years later. So imagine whatever uh, you know. Hebraic inflation <laughs> existed then. 1,500 years later, Jeremiah will buy a field for 17 shekels. So maybe this was a really nice field and a really nice cave. I've seen some really nice caves, some really nice fields. But 400 shekels, it seems like a really, really high amount. Abraham's response, done. Done. There's probably a couple reasons. I know there's at least a, a couple reasons why Abraham is willing to pay whatever the cost is for this field. We'll, we'll cover those at the end. Uh, but one of the reasons that Abraham is certainly willing to pay this for this field is simply this. Sarah is worth it. Sarah's worth it. This is not, he's not going to haggle over the price over his dead wife's body is not the time to bargain. It's not the time to haggle. Husbands, how, how special does your wife feel when you, you take her to the boutique and you're looking at a dress and you're haggling to get the dress for nothing? <laughs> Maybe she just loves you and appreciates that side of you. <laughs> you don't haggle far enough. We're done. We're out of here. They're not getting our money. I love how frugal you are. <laughs> really? <laughs> Not sure. Men, this is the point right here we go. So here's the point that the gals have been waiting for. And the guys are like, you better have some verses, buddy, or I'm out of here. Men, if and when you have the means, your wife is worth it. Okay. So in what I say here, without disregarding, without neglecting biblical financial principles. So please don't hear me saying that. I'm not saying go into debt today to buy your wife a pearl necklace. I'm not saying that you ignore um, fiscal responsibility as is put forth in Scripture. But we should say that, that men, if and when you have the means, your wife is worth it. Your wife is worth it. That is a great place to spend your money. That is an honorable place to spend your money. Your wife is worth it. Men should be challenged to spend money on their wife. Many men are tempted to, I remember these days and having to work through this, for money to terminate on themselves. For money to terminate on themselves. Men, you don't want money terminating on yourself. 
Let it terminate on the ones you love, whether that's your wife or your kids or your church or, or, uh, or non-believers in other countries, supporting missionaries, whatever it is. You don't want your money to terminate on yourself. We learn from Abraham, here's a great way for you to spend your money. Here's a great place for you to spend your money, and it is on your wife. There's a theme that, that carries throughout Scripture, and it is a, we won't get into it real deep, but it has to do with adornment. It has to do with adornment. And husbands should adorn their wives. Again, without neglecting biblical financial principles. But husbands should be committed and should be devoted to adorning their wives. Now, there's a good adornment and there's a bad adornment. There's worldly adornment and there's godly adornment. Okay? Worldly adornment means, uh, adornment means when you're beautifying something, when you're adding beauty to something, right? So worldly adornment it happens when you add beauty to that which is worldly. So when you take something that is not lovely, that is not beautiful in God's eyes, something that is worldly, and you add beauty to it, and you try to mask that which is worldly with beauty, that's a worldly adornment. And that's actually wicked. And that's actually evil. There's two examples we have in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 16 and chapter 23. One is God adorning his bride, and the other is the woman who adorns herself. And the one in scripture who the, the woman in scripture who adorns herself and adorns herself in such a way to draw attention and to pull others in and to say, look at me and look at how wonderful I am and look at how beautiful I am is a wicked sort of adornment. Hosea 2.13 says, God says, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry. And went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So there's a way that is wicked and evil when a woman adorns herself to draw attention to herself. But then there's a godly adornment when she's not saying, look at me and look how beautiful I am. When her husband says, look at her and look how beautiful she is. Look how precious she is. Look how special she is. Look how lovely she is. Look how wonderful she is. So godly adornment is when you take the godly and you add beauty. You're drawing attention to that which is good and pure and godly. You see it again in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 17 and 18, you remember the woman who represents Babylon, who represents worldliness. What has she done? She has adorned herself. So on the outside, she looks beautiful. She's like the Proverbs 5, 6, 7 woman. She looks beautiful, but inside, dead, dry bones. Not good. But then Jesus comes in Revelation chapter 22 and he brings down the holy city of God. And what does it say about the holy city of God? God has adorned it. God has adorned it. He's taken what is good and godly and he has drawn attention to it by adding beauty to it. So it's one thing for the gal who goes from mall to mall to mall to mall to mall behind her husband's back and buys this and this and this and this to adorn herself. That is very different. From the husband who says, for the glory of God, I'm going to buy you these flowers and I'm going to buy you that dress. As God would provide the means. This is a good thing to do. Listen, Abraham looked at his wife when that price tag flashed up. That exorbitant amount. And he said, Sarah is worth it. Done. Wrote the check. Verses 17 through 20. Here's the other thing that Abraham is, is clearly doing, is clearly up to when he buys this property with Sarah in mind, but now with God and his promise in mind. 
So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites. You see how see the wording here? What's, this is a big deal what's happened. He now has a possession. He has property. We're going to learn a couple of verses in the, in the middle of Canaan, in the middle of the promised land. Uh, and this is before all who went in at the city, uh, at the gate of the city. Verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So Abraham gets a piece of land and he gets a piece of land so that he can, he can, he can do well by his wife. He can serve his wife. Even after her death, he's loving her and spending money on her. And so he provides her this, this place. It's going to be close, right? Why? So that he can, so he can go visit. So he and Isaac can go visit. So that he can take his grandchildren, the grandchildren's grandchildren, so that they can go, so they can remember Sarah, tell stories about grandma. Okay, laugh. Remember her. She wants her close by. But two things. One, Abraham, he was buying this field so that he could, he could bury his wife and, and bury her well and keep her close as well. As well, Abraham was buying Ephron's field to express his confidence in God's promises concerning the land and the future. Because actually what Abraham does doesn't make any sense. He's, he, this is not his home. Remember, for over 60 years, he's been wandering. He describes himself as a stranger and an exile in your land. His home was in Ur. Remember that? Over 60 years before. That's where his heritage is. That's where his homeland is. And he's been taken from that. And it's a long time, but he's been wandering for 60 years. And he's living in tents. Stay one place for a while, pick up the stakes, move someplace else. And he's just been sort of mobile. But, but his homeland is back in earth. So what you would typically do when a loved one was lost is you would, okay, you would wrap her up. You would wrap her up as best you could with, with spices and, and, and everything you could to preserve her body. And then you would make the long journey back to your homeland, where your roots are, right? where the rest of your family is, okay? where your ancestors have been. You would take that long journey and that is where you would bury her. But strangely, Abraham goes out of his way, spends a lot of money to bury Sarah in the land of Canaan. And we understand why he does this. Because he knows that while he looks out and he doesn't own a single piece of property when he begins looking for this, this cave, this, this burial plot, while he knows that he doesn't own a single piece of property, he knows that decades ago the Lord came to him and said, this is going to be your land. And he believes God. Believes God. This is Abraham's faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Whatever God told Abraham, Abraham believed it. So he's seeing with eyes of faith as he looks out. I need to find, I need to find a place here. 
I need to find a place here because God has promised that this is where we're going to be. And it may not look that way now. And it may seem foolish and it may seem like a strange thing to do when my homeland is far away. But this is where we need to be. And borrowing from somebody won't do. We need to have our own because this is where I'm going to be buried. And it is. This is where Isaac will be buried. And he was. This is where Isaac's wife will be buried. And she was, Rebecca. This is where his grandson, Jacob, would be buried. He was. Jacob's wife, Leah. And presumably, Joseph, his great-grandson, will be buried in this same tomb as the Lord is faithful. Joseph said this in Genesis chapter 50. When he was in Egypt about to die to his brothers in Egypt, he said, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham. That's a great grandson who's been brought up well, isn't it? He's been brought up with the promises of his great granddad. Okay, God, God told us that, and still they don't have possession of this land. Still it's not their home. And great-grandson is saying, you carry my bones when I'm dead. And you put them up next to mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and great-grandma and great-grandpa because God will be faithful to his promise. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now Abraham owns property in the promised land of Canaan. In the small piece of land, this field serves, as one author says, a down payment for the full return God had promised him. By leaving their bones in Canaan, the patriarchs left their last witness to the promise. So see this, at the end of his life, I'm sorry, the end of his wife's life. Okay, Sarah's died. Abraham has two, so clearly, Abraham has two things on his mind. Sarah and the promise. That simplifies things, doesn't it? He has has two things on his mind. My wife and the promise. My wife and Jesus. My life and the Lord. We want the faith of Abraham. We want to focus like Abraham had. We want a vision of life and death like Abraham had. We only have that by faith and through faith as the Lord would enable. We should long for this faith, ask for this faith, pray for this faith, exercise this kind of faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have been uh, you have been exorbitant in your grace toward us, God. You have given us so much. And it is true that our cup overflows, that it overflows with uh, joy, it overflows with sorrows, it overflows with mercy and, and grace and, and goodness, it overflows with help and provision and protection. You've been good to us, God. You've been faithful. And we want to be faithful to You. We do not want to be a faithless, idolatrous, adulterous bride. We want to be a faithful bride. You know our temptations, Lord. And you know how close we all are to a slip. So God, we ask that you would keep us. That you would protect us uh, from ourselves often. God, give us the faith of Abraham. God, make us the kind of, of salt and light in this world that that shows forth a faith like Abraham had, that people would see then how great our God is. 
how perfect our God is because you are worthy of this kind of love and worthy of this kind of trust. There's, there's no one else for us to love like this and there's no one else for us to trust like this except you, God. And you're worthy of it. So we spend it all on you. This time of communion, as we recognize this last supper, draw us close to you, God, to your throne of grace and prayer and communion with you. Remind us, remind our minds and our hearts of your sacrifice and what what the cost was to pay for our forgiveness, that our debt could be taken and we could be brought to you. We love you and give you all praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.